Chapter 13, Part 2 of The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1, by Frederick Wimper. The Service Officer's Life on Board, Part 2 Sailors, in spite of their outbursts of recklessness, have frequently, from the very nature of their perilous calling, an amount of seriousness underlying their character, which makes them particularly amenable to religious influences. The chaplain on a large modern ironclad or frigate has as many men in his charge as regards spiritual matters as the vicar of a country town or large village, whilst he has many more opportunities of reaching them directly. Many of our naval chaplains are noble fellows, and to them come the sailors in any distress of mind for the soothing advice so readily given. He may not dare to interfere with the powers that be when they are in danger of punishment, except in very rare cases, but he can point them out their path of duty, and how to walk in it, making them better sailors and happier men. He can lend them an occasional book, or write for them an occasional letter home, induce them to refrain from dissipation when on liberty, cheer them in the hour of greatest peril while on the watery deep, and give them an occasional reproof, but in kindness, not in anger. To his brother officers he has even better opportunities of doing good than to the men. On the smaller classes of vessels, gunboats and the like, the captain has to perform chaplain's duties by reading prayers on the Sabbath. This is the case also on well-regulated steamships or passenger sailing vessels of the merchant service, the fine steamers of such lines as the Kennard or White Star of the Royal Mail Company or of the P&O have, of course, frequently some clergyman, minister, or missionary on board who is willing to celebrate divine service. A committee of the Lower House of Convocation has recently collected an immense amount of statistics regarding the provision made by private shipowners for the spiritual welfare of their men and the result as regards england is not at all satisfactory in point of fact it is rarely made at all the committee seeks to encourage the growth of religion among sailors by providing suitable and comfortable church accommodation at all ports and urges owners to instruct their captains as to conducting divine service on sundays and to furnish bibles prayer books and instructive works of secular literature too much must not, however, be expected from Jack. The hardships and perils through which he passes excuse much of his exuberance ashore. It is his holiday time, and, so long as he is only gay and not abandoned, the most rigid must admit that he has earned the right to recreation. A distinguished French naval officer used to say that the sailor fortunately had no memory. Happy for him, said he, that he is thus oblivious, did he remember all the gales and tempests, the cold, the drenching rain, the misery, the privations, the peril to life and limb which he has endured? He would never, when he sets foot on shore, go to sea again. But he has no memory. The clouds roll away. The sea is calm. The sun shines. The boat bears him to land. 
the wine flows the music strikes up pretty girls smile he forgets all the past and lives only in the present while the chaplain may and no doubt generally does earn the respect and esteem of the men woe to any example of the chad band order who shall be found on board this is in the royal navy almost impossible but it sometimes happens that on passenger ships some sanctimonious and fanatical individual or other has had a very rough time of it he is regarded as a kind of jonah in a recent number of that best of american magazines the atlantic monthly the woes and trials of one poor joseph primrose a well-meaning minister who went out to america in seventeen forty two are amusingly recounted there were aboard the polly the vessel in which he took passage several of the crew who viewed their religious exercises askance these men says he had been foremost in a general indignation uprising that had ensued upon the stoppage of their daily allowance of rum which step had been taken on my earnest recommendation for this injurious drink we had substituted a harmless and refreshing beverage concocted of molasses vinegar and water from a choice receipt i had come upon in a medical book aboard the vessel the sailors to a man refused to touch it egged on by these contumacious fellows and more especially by one springer a daring villain who reviled me with bitter execrations in fine the captain was obliged for our own safety to restore the cherished dram and i had the mortification to find myself from that time forth an object of dislike and suspicion to these men who were kept within decent bounds only by respect for their master i became convinced on reflection that i had gone the wrong way about this unfortunate piece of business having in fact made a very serious error in the beginning gentle argument and good example being more apt to bring about the desired end than compulsory measures these dulling the understanding by rousing the temper especially among persons of the meaner sort all my efforts and they were not few to place myself on a friendly footing with these men were of no avail they had conceived the notion that i was their enemy and met all my advances with obstinate coldness as captain hewlett exacted the daily attendance at prayers of every soul on board these knaves were compelled to be on hand with their fellows but they rarely failed to conduct themselves with such indecent levity as made me rue their presence playing covertly at cat's cradle jack straws and what not besides grinning familiarly in my face whenever they could contrive to catch my eye this unseemly behaviour was as nothing to what followed ashore while addressing a large assemblage he noted the advent of a number of unmannerly fellows who with a great deal of clatter elbowed their way to the front the moment i clapped eyes upon them says poor primrose i knew them for the sailors who had so persecuted me aboard the polly and my heart sank at the bare sight of them they sung or rather bawled ribald words to the music of the hymns and one of them when rebuked by some gentleman present whipped out his cutlass and a general row ensued which broke up the assembly a little later primrose induced a tavern-keeper to allow him to preach on his premises a west indian vessel coming into port about the middle of april and a horde of roistering sailors gathering in the common room of the sailors rest to drink i announced a discourse on the subject of gin-guzzling 
choosing one that I had delivered aboard the Polly, and which seemed to fit the occasion to a nicety. No sooner had the landlord seen the notice to this effect that I had attached to his door-cheek than he sends for me to repair to the tavern without loss of time, and on my appearance, in great haste, comes blustering up to me in a most offensive manner, demanding whether I purposed the ruin of his trade by putting forth such a mischievous paper, adding with astounding audacity that he should certainly lose all the custom I had been the means of fetching to his house did I persist in my intent mark the cunning of the knave he had encouraged my labours for none other purpose than to bringing off fresh grist to his mill and here was i blindly leading precious souls to destruction the poor dupe of a specious villain a wretch without bowels my agony of mind on being thus suddenly enlightened was of such a desperate sort that gnashing my teeth i leapt upon the miscreant and bearing him to the ground with an awful crash beat him about the head and shoulders with the stout cane i carried and with such good will that i presently found myself lying in the town gaol covered with the blood of my enemy and every bone in my body aching from the unaccustomed exercise truly was i as forlorn and friendless a creature as the world ever saw my clothing had been rent beyond repair in the shameful struggle and yet worse one of my shoes was gone how and where i knew not and although i promised the gowler's little lad a penny in the event of his finding it nothing was ever heard of it from that day to this one thought alone cheered me in the dark abyss into which i was fallen i had administered wholesome and righteous correction in the proper season hip and thigh had i hewed my enemy and to reflect upon that was as a healing balm to my sore bones mr primrose was at length released and returned to england another officer of the royal navy the engineer deserves particular notice for his position is becoming daily of more and more importance it is not merely the care and working of the engines which propel the vessel in which he is concerned the chief and his subordinates have charge of various hydraulic arrangements often used nowadays on large vessels in connection with the steering apparatus of electrical and gas producing apparatus the mechanical arrangements of turrets and gun carriages pumping machinery the management of steam launches and torpedoes take the great ironclad thunderer that on which the terrible boiler explosion occurred as an example she has twenty-six engines for various purposes apart from the engines used to propel the vessel which have an actual power of six thousand horses the temeraire has thirty-four engines distinct from those required for propulsion a competent authority says that with the exception of the paymasters and surgeons stores he is responsible for everything in and outside the ship meaning the hull apart from the navigator's duties to say nothing of his duties while under way and yet engineers of the navy do not yet either derive the status or emoluments fairly due to them considering the great and increasing responsibilities thrown upon them of late years sir walter scott makes rob roy express his contempt of weavers and spinners and sick-like mechanical persons and their pursuits and in the naval service some such feeling still lingers 
the first serious introduction of steam vessels into the royal navy occurred about the year eighteen twenty nine the navy list of that year showing seven of which three only were commissioned and these for home ports no mention is made of engineers they were simply taken over from the contractor with the vessel and held no rank whatever in eighteen thirty seven an admiralty circular conferred warrants on engineers who were to rank immediately below carpenters they were to be assisted by boys trained by themselves three years later the standard was raised and they were divided into three classes in eighteen forty two a slight increase of pay was given and they were advanced to the magnificent rank of after captain's clerks and were given a uniform with buttons having a steam engine embossed upon them in eighteen forty seven the government found that the increasing demands of the merchant and passenger service took all the best men the engineers pay to-day is better on first-class steamship lines than in the navy and they were forced to do something the higher grades were formed into chief engineers and they were raised to the rank of commissioned officers taking their place after masters the first great revolution in regard to the use of steam in the royal navy took place in eighteen forty nine by means of the screw propeller in that year dupuy de lhomme conducted the napoleon a screw vessel carrying one hundred guns and with engines of six hundred horsepower and england had to follow then came the russian war the construction of ironclad batteries and finally the ironclad movement which commenced in england in eighteen fifty eight by the construction of the warrior and similar vessels it becomes a particularly serious question at the present time whether the system as regards the rank and pay of engineers does not deter the most competent men from entering the royal navy many very serious explosions and accidents have occurred on board ironclads which would seem to indicate that our great commercial steamship lines are far better engineered the admiralty has organized a system for training students at the dockyard factories followed up by a course of study at the naval college greenwich and it is to be hoped that these efforts will lead to greater efficiency in the service a naval engineer of the present day needs to be a man of liberal education and of considerable scientific knowledge both theoretical and practical and he should then receive on board that recognition which his talents would command ashore at present a chief engineer r n ranks with a commander and other engineers with lieutenants it is probable that at some date in the not very distant future higher ranks will be thrown open to the engineer as his importance on board is steadily increasing the seamen of all nations it has in effect been said resemble each the other more than do the nations to which they belong as says a well-known writer the sea receives and amalgamates the waters of all the rivers which pour into it so it tends to amalgamate the men who make its waves their home the seaman from the united states is said to carry to the forecastle a large stock of equality and the rights of man and to be unpleasantly distinguished by the inbred disrespect for authority which cleaves perhaps inseparably to a democrat who believes that he has whipped mankind and that it is his mission at due intervals to whip them again but on board he too tones down to the color of blue water and is more a seaman than anything else 
the french sailor is painted by landel as the embodiment of the same frolicsome light-heartedness carelessness of the future abandonment to impulse and devotion to his captain comrades and ship with which we are familiar in the english sailor on the stage but although depicted as much more polished than it is to be feared the average sailor could be in truth he finishes by saying il est toujours prêt à céder les hauts du pavé à tout autre qu'un soldat it would seem then that the french sailor revenges the treatment of society on the soldiers of his country is there not a similar feeling existing perhaps to a more limited extent between the sailors and soldiers of our own country it hardly however extends to the officers of the united service another trait of the british sailor's character jack will forgive much to the officer who is ever ready brave and daring who is a true seaman in times of peace and a sailor militant in times of war lord nelson the most heroic seaman the world ever saw it is pleasant to remember was equally the idol of his colleagues of his subordinate officers and of his men for these very reasons after he had explained to his captains his proposed plan of attack just prior to the commencement of the battle of trafalgar he took the men of the victory into his confidence he walked over all the decks speaking kindly to the different classes of seamen and encouraging them with his usual affability praising the manner in which they had barricaded certain parts of the ship all was perfect death-like silence till just before the action began three cheers were given his lordship as he ascended the quarter-deck ladder he had been particular in recommending cool steady firing in preference to a hurrying fire without aim or precision and the event justified his lordship's advice as the mass of his opponents came tumbling down on their decks and over the sides after the fatal bullet had done its work and nelson was conveyed below the surgeon came and probed the wound the ball was extracted but the dying hero told the medical man how sure he was that his wound was fatal and begged when he addressed it that he would attend to the other poor fellows equal sufferers with himself a boatswain's mate on board the brilliant frigate shortly afterwards when first acquainted of the death of nelson paid a tribute of affection and honest feeling which shows how clearly he had gained the hearts of all the boatswain's mate then doing duty as boatswain was ordered to pipe all hands to quarters he did not respond and the lieutenant on duty went to inquire the cause the man had been celebrated for his promptness as well as bravery but he was found utterly unnerved and sobbing like a child i can't do it said he poor dear fellow that i have been in many a hard day with and to lose him now i wouldn't have cared so much for my old father mother brothers or sisters but to think of parting with poor nelson and he broke down utterly the officer honoring his feelings let him go below who does not remember how when the body of nelson lay in state at greenwich a deputation of the victory's crew paid their last loving respects tearful and silent and could scarcely be removed from the scene or how when the two union jacks and st george's ensign were being lowered into the grave at st paul's the colors shattered as was the body of the dead hero the brave fellows who had borne them each tore off a part of the largest flag to remind them ever after of england's greatest victory and england's greatest loss many an otherwise noble and brave officer has utterly failed in endearing himself to his men 
and there can be no doubt of the value of being thoroughly en rapport with them the more as it in no way need relax discipline it is an implied compliment to accrue from their commander to be taken at the proper time into his confidence the following anecdote will show how much an action was decided by this and with how little loss of life the bologna of seventy-four guns and five hundred fifty-eight men with a most valuable freight on merchant's account and commanded by the celebrated captain r faulkner and the brilliant a thirty-six gun frigate captain lodgy sailed from the tagus in august seventeen sixty one when off vigo three sail were discovered approaching the land and the strangers continued their approach till they found out the character of the english vessels and then crowded on all sail in flight upon this the bologna and brilliant pursued coming up with them next morning to find that they would have to engage one ship of seventy-four guns the Courageau, with seven hundred men and two frigates of thirty-six guns each the Melissieuse and hermine after exchanging a few broadsides the french vessels shot ahead when captain lodgy seeing that he could not expect to take either of the smaller vessels determined to manoeuvre and lead them such a wild goose chase that the bologna should have to engage the courageux alone during the whole engagement he withstood the united attacks of both the frigates each of them with equal force to his own and at last obliged them to sheer off greatly damaged meanwhile the courageux and bologna had approached each other very fast the courageux when within musket shot fired her first broadside and there was much impatience on the bologna to return it but they were restrained by faulkner who called out to them to hold hard and not to fire till they saw the whites of the frenchman's eyes adding take my word for it they will never stand the singeing of their whiskers his speech to the sailors just before the action is a model of sailor-like advice gentlemen i have been bred a seaman from my youth and consequently am no orator but i promise to carry you all near enough and then you may speak for yourselves nevertheless i think it necessary to acquaint you with the plan i propose to pursue in taking this ship that you may be the better prepared i propose to lead you close on the enemy's larboard quarter when we will discharge two broadsides and then back astern and range upon the other quarter and so tell your guns as you pass i recommend you at all times to point chiefly at the quarters with your guns slanting fore and aft this is the principal part of a ship if you kill the officers break the rudder and snap the braces she is yours of course but for this reason i desire you may only fire one round of shot and grape above and two rounds shot only below take care and send them home with exactness this is a rich ship they will render you in return their weight in gold this program was very nearly carried out almost every shot took effect the french still kept up a very brisk fire and in a moment the bologna shrouds and rigging were almost all cut to pieces and in nine minutes her mizzenmast fell over the stern undaunted faulkner managed to wear his ship round the officers and men flew to their respective opposite guns and carried on from the larboard side a fire even more terrible than they had hitherto kept up from the starboard guns it was impossible for mortal beings to withstand a battery so incessantly repeated and so fatally directed and in about twenty minutes from the first shot 
the french colors were hauled down and orders were immediately given in the bologna to cease firing the enemy having struck the men had left their quarters and all the officers were on the quarter-deck congratulating one another on their victory when unexpectedly a round of shot came from the lower tier of the courageo it is impossible to describe the rage that animated the bologna's crew on this occasion without waiting for orders they flew again to their guns and in a moment poured in what they familiarly termed two comfortable broadsides upon the enemy who now called out loudly for quarter and firing at length ceased on both sides the courageau was a mere wreck having nothing but her foremast and bowsprit standing several of her ports knocked into one and her deck rent in a hundred places she lost two hundred forty killed and one hundred ten wounded men were put ashore at lisbon on board the bologna only six men were killed outright and about twenty-eight wounded the loss of her mizzen was her only serious disaster end of the service officer's life on board part two recording by pete mckelvin